Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows. Well, it looks like my shooting improved during my fall sabbatical. It seems I hit on a little-known event in the life of a well-known historical figure. That would be the Battle of Fort Necessity, which took place on July 3, 1754. This battle, along with a small skirmish that took place a month earlier, marks the first military action seen by a young colonial officer named George Washington. Oh yeah, and it's also the battle generally credited with starting the French and Indian War. So let's see what happened. France had been colonizing parts of North America ever since the 1500s. They had New France, which was modern-day Canada, Acadia, which was roughly like Canada's maritime provinces and part of Maine, and of course Louisiana. All in all, that's a lot of land. But here's the thing. Even by the mid-1700s, there were less than 100,000 French colonists in that entire area. Perhaps you're wondering, how in the world so few people could control so big a place? Simple. The French controlled the major waterways. The St. Lawrence River, the Great Lakes, the Ohio, Allegheny, Monongahela, and Mississippi rivers. On top of this, they also built strong alliances with a number of the Native American nations in that area. By the mid-1700s, one area of this large colonial holding was becoming increasingly important to the French. That would be the Ohio River Valley, or the Ohio Country, as it was sometimes called. This was the area roughly between Lake Erie and the Ohio River, like where the state of Ohio is. This land was important to the French because at this time, increasing numbers of French settlers were moving from the more established French settlements along the St. Lawrence in Canada to the newer Louisiana Territory, and the Ohio Country was the connection between those two places. Now, the Ohio Country also butted up against the western parts of the British colonies of Pennsylvania and Virginia. By the mid-1700s, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of a million and a half British subjects living throughout the 13 colonies. If you're keeping score at home, that meant the British outnumbered the French by almost 20 to 1. Anyway, British traders claimed that the Ohio country was unsettled, uncharted, and therefore unclaimed land. This was despite the fact that there were French traders and numerous Native American tribes living there. To the British, this meant that anyone could trade there. This was the last thing the French wanted, competition from a bunch of British traders. Because let's face it, the British, with their large population and large colonial cities, could offer goods to the Native Americans that were cheaper in price and better in quality. French traders just couldn't compete with British goods. In an effort to keep British traders and colonists out of the Ohio country, the French began to build a string of forts running through the area in 1753. These actions drew the attention of not just the British, 
but the Native Americans as well. Even though there had been good Franco-Indian relations in the past, by this point, the British traders had convinced many tribes to do business with them. So this string of French forts had both groups rather unhappy. On top of this, let's bring the colony of Virginia further into the story. Virginians claimed that their charter, the oldest of all the British colonies, gave them claim to the Ohio country. To try to solidify this claim, a group of wealthy Virginians formed the Ohio Company in 1748. Virginia's royal governor at the time was Robert Dinwiddie, who also happened to be one of the founding investors in the Ohio Company. Needless to say, he was alarmed by news of French fort construction in 1753. He figured he'd better try to do something about it. So in December of that year, he called on 21-year-old Colonial Lieutenant Colonel George Washington and ordered him to travel to Fort Leboeuf in the Ohio country to deliver a letter to the French telling them to leave the area. Dinwiddie chose Washington because his older brothers had helped organize the Ohio Company, and George had done some surveying for his brothers in that area. Washington and his troops set off for the Ohio Country. Also traveling with them was the Mingo chief, Tanacharison, who was also called Half-King, and the explorer, Christopher Gist. After a long trek, they arrived at Fort Leboeuf. They met with the regional French commander, Jacques Legadieu de Saint-Pierre, who very politely informed them that he had orders to be there, that he wasn't going to leave, and that the letter Washington carried should have been sent to his commanding officer in Canada. Washington and his crew trekked back to Virginia and delivered the news to Governor Dinwiddie that the French refused to leave. Yeah, go figure. Dinwiddie told Washington to raise a militia regiment with the objective of holding the forks of the Ohio River. That would be where modern-day Pittsburgh is, where the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers come together to form the Ohio. Washington had identified that area as an excellent location on which to build a fort. The flaw in this plan, however, was that unlike the French, who could reach that area by river, Washington and his regiment would have to march through dense forests. Because that would take some time, Dinwiddie gave a captain's commission to Ohio Company employee William Trent. Trent was to assemble a small force that was capable of moving swiftly through the wilderness and get to the forks of the Ohio as soon as possible. Once there, he was to begin construction of a fort while awaiting Washington and his regiment to arrive to reinforce him. Trent and his men arrived at the Forks of the Ohio in February of 1754. With the help of Tanacharison and the Mingos, they began building a fort. The French, of course, caught wind of this and sent a force of 500 French regulars, Canadian militia, and their Indian allies under the command of Claude Pierre de Contrasseur to put a stop to it. On April 16th, they arrived at the fort. The next day, Trent's force of 36 men agreed to leave the site. The French promptly demolished the British works and set to building their own fort, which would become known as Fort Duquesne. Meanwhile, back in Virginia, Washington was gathering his regiment. In late March, Governor Dinwiddie gave Washington his orders. He was to 
act on the defensive, but if any attempt was made by the French to obstruct their works, Washington was to restrain all such offenders and make prisoners of them or kill them. Ooh, that sounds very much like an invitation to start a war. And realize, Dinwiddie gave these orders without the knowledge or direction of the British government. On April 2nd, 1754, Washington and 186 men set out for the Forks of the Ohio. Back at Fort Duquesne, Contrasseur was operating under orders that forbade him from attacking unless he was provoked. With this in mind, on May 23rd, he sent Joseph Coulon de Jumanville and a force of 35 men to see if Washington had entered French territory. Jumonville also carried a letter ordering Washington and his troops to leave the area, if they were actually there, much like the letter Washington had delivered earlier that year. As he made his way through the forest, Washington picked up some more men from a regiment he met at Winchester. Farther along, he ran into Trent and his men. Tanacharison was with them and promised Washington help from his warriors. Washington decided to build a fortification about 37 miles south of Fort Duquesne and await further instructions. He also had his men continue to work on the road they had been building as they journeyed toward the French fort. On May 27th, Washington was informed by Christopher Gist, the explorer who had worked with him the previous year, that a party of French troops was in the area. Washington sent 75 men with Gist to try to find them. That evening, Tanacharison sent word that he had located a French camp. Washington decided to take 40 soldiers and go meet up with him. On the morning of May 28, 1754, Washington met up with Tanacharison and his 12 warriors. After a quick discussion, they took up positions behind some rocks and attacked the French camp. And thus, we have the Battle of Jumonville Glen. It's rather unclear what actually transpired during this brief skirmish, which only lasted about 15 minutes. What we do know is that around a dozen French were killed, several more wounded, and the rest taken prisoner. Among the dead was Jumonville himself, but the manner of his death is rather hazy. Some reports claim that Tanacharison whacked him in the head with a tomahawk, killing him in cold blood, but that's debatable, and Washington never made mention of that. After this skirmish, Washington expected the French to come after him. He and his men made for Great Meadows, and word was sent for the rest of the Virginia Regiment to meet up with him there. Tanacharison went to try to get the Lenape, Shawnee, and Mingo tribes to help, but was unsuccessful. At Great Meadows, Washington had his men quickly build a fort, which he aptly named Fort Necessity. On June 9th, the rest of the Virginia Regiment arrived. A few days after this, a hundred British regulars under the command of James McKay arrived, but chose to camp separately outside the fort. On June 16th, despite not having Native American support, Washington decided to have his men continue work on the road they had been making with the goal of widening it toward Redstone Creek. This continued until June 28th, when Washington received word that a force of 600 French and 100 Indian allies had left Fort Duquesne. 
They were led by Louis Coulon, the older brother of the slain Jumonville. Washington ordered his troops back to Fort Necessity at all possible speed. Consequently, they abandoned most of their supplies in their hurry to stay ahead of the oncoming French and arrived at the fort on July 1st. On July 2nd, a heavy rain began to fall. The fort's provisions hut was all but depleted. There was little shelter from the weather, and the defensive trenches that the men had dug filled with water and turned into a muddy mess. On top of this, the tree line was less than 100 yards away, well within musket range, meaning that an attacker could pick off defenders while remaining safely hidden in the trees. To try to improve their defensive situation, Washington orders his men to cut down some trees and try to make crude breastworks. As the Virginians worked on their fort, Coulon and his force drew ever closer, using the road Washington had been building. <laughs> How convenient. Early on the morning of July 3rd, the French forces reached Jumonville Glen and were horrified to find several scalped French corpses. Let's just say that seeing the place his brother was killed and the state of some of the French dead made Coulon angry. He had the bodies buried and pushed on. At 11 a.m. on July 3, 1754, Coulon and his troops arrived at Fort Necessity. Members of the Virginia militia were digging more trenches in the mud. British pickets caught sight of the enemy and fired before falling back to the fort. Coulon sent his troops moving downhill toward the fort in three columns. However, he somehow miscalculated, and his columns ended up moving to the left of the fort. While Coulon halted and redeployed his troops, Washington had some time to prepare a defense. Coulon moved his force back into the trees. Seeing this, and knowing the enemy could sit in its present location all day and shoot at him, Washington ordered an assault with his entire force moving across the clearing to the trees. Coulon countered by sending his forces, led by Indian warriors, in a charge directly at the Brits. Washington ordered his men to hold their ground and fire a volley at the attackers. The British regulars under McKay obeyed, and with the support of two swivel cannon, they inflicted some casualties on the enemy. Unfortunately, the Virginia militia fled back to the fort, leaving Washington and the regulars outnumbered. He had no choice but to retreat back to the fort as well. Coulon had his troops return to the woods. From there, they kept up a sustained fire on the fort and its defenders. Washington ordered his troops to return fire, but many aimed high, so they caused few casualties. The two swivel cannons fared no better. To make matters worse, a heavy rain began to fall in the afternoon. Soon, Washington's troops were unable to return fire because their powder got wet. While Washington and his troops had things going poorly for them in the fort, the situation for the French outside the fort wasn't a whole lot better. The French had kept their powder dry, but by that afternoon, the soldiers were fatigued and running low of powder and ball. On top of this, Coulon feared that British reinforcements might be on the way. They weren't, but he didn't know that. He decided the best course of action was a parley. 
Coulon sent an officer under a white flag of truce to negotiate. Washington sent two men, including his translator, Jacob Van Braun, to meet with the man. The Frenchman said that they had no desire to disturb the peace between their two kingdoms, but wished only to avenge the murder of one of our officers, bearer of a summons, and of his escort, and also prevent any establishment being made on the lands of the French king. As these negotiations went on, the Virginia militiamen, against Washington's orders, broke out the fort's liquor supply and proceeded to get drunk. Van Braun came back to the fort to relay the French offer to Washington. The deal was that if he surrendered the fort, Washington and his men would be free to go back to Virginia. If not, the Indians would storm the fort and scalp everyone. Washington agreed to surrender and sent Van Braun back to tell the French. Coulon had an aide draft the terms of surrender and had this document sent over to Washington. Because it was in French, Washington had Van Braun translate it. Along with the terms of surrender, it also stated that Jumonville had been assassinated. Both Washington and McKay signed it. The next day, July 4th, Washington and his troops abandoned Fort Necessity. They marched away with their drummers drumming and their colors flying. But as they went, the French and Indians began to loot the wagons carrying their baggage. Washington let this happen because he feared a bloodbath if he tried to stop it. Washington and his men arrived back in Virginia in the middle of July. On July 17th, Washington reported to Governor Dinwiddie and gave his account of the battle. He fully expected to be rebuked for his actions, but Dinwiddie and the House of Burgesses instead gave him a vote of thanks for his efforts. They blamed the defeat not on Washington and his men, but rather on poor supply and the refusal of other colonies to help. The Battle of Fort Necessity was the opening battle of the French and Indian War, which in turn escalated into the Global Seven Years' War in 1756. George Washington would continue to fight in this war, and then, um, I think he did some other stuff with his life. But, you know, talking about all that, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, and check out some of my other episodes. And I... Very much look forward to talking with you again in two weeks.